Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. You can also put a marker or you can just write these down. Go back and look at them on your own later. Psalm chapter 55. Psalm chapter 55. And Psalm chapter 51. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, and I'm just going to be honest and upfront with you, I'm going to ask you to put on your, your scholarly hat today. This is not one of those messages that's, excuse me, a holler back and a shout me down kind of a preaching. This is probably a little bit more of a, of a teaching, but I believe that there's some depth here that will help us avoid some things in our lives if we can learn from a life that's already been lived. I believe that that's important for us to do. That you can learn from other people uh, what to do and what not to do. And then you don't have to repeat the same mistakes. So here we are, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 11. Verse 11. Samuel asked the man named Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? Now let me just catch you up right here. So what had happened is God has taken his hand off of Saul. Saul, the king of Israel, has been disobedient. <clears throat> he did not do as the Lord instructed. And so the Lord has instructed Samuel to anoint a new king. And he told him that he will find that king in the house of David. So, I'm sorry, in the house of Jesse. And so Jesse brought his sons before the prophet Samuel for Samuel to anoint one of his sons. Jesse had eight sons. The only problem is that only seven of them were invited, had an invitation to this first meeting. So there are seven of the eight sons of Jesse. One of them is the eldest, the largest, the most prepared, the most outwardly apparent choice that the prophet should make. But the Lord, upon each one of these seven sons, says, this is not the one. And Samuel would move to the next one. This is not the one. Samuel will move to the next one. He gets all the way from the youngest to the oldest. He gets all the way through the seven sons standing before him. And the Lord said, none of these are the ones. So Samuel, the prophet, looks back at the father, Jesse, and says, are these all the sons you have? And then Jesse says, there is still the youngest. But he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. Okay, let me, I just wanted to pause again in this second service this morning because I believe that this is this is pivotal for somebody and, and maybe many this this generation uh, by a lot by many has been referred to as one of the most fatherless generations that has ever lived and, and I believe that there needs to be a restoration of a spiritual father and a physical father in God's house and in the families and in the houses uh, of uh, a in the cities across our nation, across our state, that that's what God wants to do is He wants to restore the heart of the Father. But listen, I just want to make sure that you understand today. Jesse did not forget his eighth son. He neglected him. He was not paying attention to him. He did not consider him. He didn't see him. But I want to tell, I don't know who this is for this morning. And I don't know what your background was for. Maybe, maybe your father was there, but he was absent relationally. Maybe your father was never around. Maybe you were only able to see him at times because you came from a broken home. Maybe you had a stepfather. Maybe you had no father whatsoever. I just wanted to come and stop and pause in this moment and make sure that you hear, I believe, 
part of the most essential piece of this entire sermon right here up front is that even though the eyes of your earthly father may have not been considering you, may have not been upon you, maybe they didn't love you the way that you wanted them to love you, there was still a heavenly father that never took his eye off of you. There is a kingdom that is not of our own. And the father in heaven, he never looked away. He's never forgotten you. He's never forsaken you. And when the earthly daddy didn't measure up, the heavenly father set the bar and he chose you from the very beginning. So he is father to the fatherless. No matter what you came from, it doesn't determine where you're going. Where you are currently does not determine who you are because you are chosen, not forsaken. And you are who he says that you are. Send him out. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. See, I believe that that should be the heart of our church. That we don't just come in on a Sunday, even on a Wednesday night. That we don't come in on a serve day or even on a health fair looking for how we can be ministered to alone. Now I get that there are times where you need to be ministered to and you need to just come to the table and you need to eat. But there are times when we've had enough food and we need to prepare a seat for somebody else. Where we need to come to the house of God and say, Lord, I don't need one more thing except for that person to be ministered to. I'm not here for me today. I'm here for him I'm here for her and we're not going to take another bite of anything else that would please ourselves until we teach them how to eat and make sure that they know that we care we're not going to have another meal we're not going to eat anything until he arrives until the one that is currently not in the room is sitting in the seat that was prepared for him that's a message to the church it's a message to the heart of the believer so Jesse sent for him he was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. Now, Andre Von Zill spoke a, a, an anointing of David over me, and I had never considered it before until I read this scripture right here, and I realized, man, Andre Von Zill, he was actually pretty on. And my, and I, on first service, I said, I'm just kidding. And my wife wrote in my notes that she shares with me, no, you're not. And so I just thought, I said, thank you, baby. I know. Thank you, Jesus, for the eyes of my bride. Thank you, Lord. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. This is the one. Anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil, and there was nothing significant about the oil except for what it represented, which was the power of God and the Holy Spirit. He had brought and anointed David with the oil. And watch this. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. So Samuel returned to Ramah. Okay, now turn to Psalm 55, Psalm 55, verse 4. Psalm 55, verse 4. And watch what David wrote after he was anointed. Watch what David wrote after he had a powerful encounter of the anointing of the Spirit of God. In verse 4 of Psalm chapter 55, he says, My heart pounds in my chest, and the terror of death assaults me. Fear and trembling overwhelm me, and I can't stop shaking. Oh, that I had wings like a dove, then I would fly away and rest. 
And I, and I know that I probably shouldn't have watched this movie. Um, I would claim that it was in my BC years, but I think this came out when I was in junior high or high school, and there were seasons of my life where I was actually living for Jesus um, in that time. But I can't help but think of Forrest Gump when I read this verse right here. Oh, that I had wings. Please, God, make me a bird that I would fly far, far away from here. Oh, God. And just over and over again. And, and maybe, maybe she was quoting the psalmist. I mean, hey, look, they put scripture in Forrest Gump. We didn't even know it. Oh, that I had wings like a dove. That I could just, look, that I could just get out of here. I, that I could just get up. Get, just give up. I don't, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to go through this. I'm scared to death. I can't stop shaking. My heart is pounding in my chest. And the terror of death assaults me. What happened? What happened between that time that you were anointed uh, by the man of God in the Spirit of God and the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon you from that day on and then all of a sudden later on in life you write, my heart pounds in my chest and the terror of death assaults me. What happened? What happened between that moment when you first encountered God and now when you should know who you are in Him and be spiritually mature but you're scared to death because you've lost your identity? What took place? Well, let's back up just a little bit. Psalm chapter 51. Psalm chapter 51, verse 6. You desire... Again, David is writing to the Spirit of the Lord. You desire honesty from the womb. Okay, teaching me wisdom even from there. Now, this is one of those places where I, I, I don't feel like that the New Living Translation did the best job. This is a little bit better translation. I'm reading from the English Standard Version now. It says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. Okay, watch this. In the depths of my, on the inside, in the secret place. You want me to be honest with you in my heart. Not just in the open, which everybody can see, but on the inside. Well, I haven't arrived. That's okay. That's what we're aspiring to. And we're not going to be content with anything less than God's best for our lives. And God's best for our lives is that we would behold that God delights in truth in the innermost part of our being. On the inside where nobody else knows. And then it says, and you teach me wisdom in the secret place. I don't learn wisdom out in the open. I learn wisdom in the secret place. In my heart. In the innermost part of my being. Not just from consequence. Not just from experience. But I learn wisdom from you. Now look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart. Oh God, renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. I want you to notice right here that David did not beg God not to take his crown. David did not beg God not to take his throne. David didn't beg God not to take his title, his position, his provision, his treasury, his family. David begged God. Do whatever you need to do to get me in the right place with you. Just please do not 
remove your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Because I remember the day when I first met you. I remember the day when I was in the field by myself, forgotten by my earthly father. But the eyes of heaven looked down upon a shepherd boy and said, he's the one, the eighth one that nobody's paying attention to. The youngest one that feels forgotten. The youngest one that feels inconsidered. I want to bring him or her before the Lord. And I remember the day that you anointed me and your spirit fell upon me. And so I ask that what you've done before you would do again. Please don't take your spirit from me, but restore unto me the joy of the day that I first met you. My salvation. Make me. Come on, here's our prayer. Pray this one this week. God, make me be obedient to you. Make me be willing to obey you. You can spend the rest of your life on these three scriptures. And if you could just learn to meditate them on enough, meditate on them enough that you get them from your head to your heart into your habits, then it would change who you are and the influence that you have. Today I want to discuss with you the life lessons of David. The life lessons of David. Now, uh, I spent the last four years studying a lot about leadership. Uh, I spent, studied some secular leadership, some organizational, some corporate, some Christian, some biblical, and then piled it all together. And honestly, it was the best in corporate America, just to let you know, the best leadership principle that corporate America has to offer. I'm not even sure that most of them know, but it's actually biblical principles. They call it, discovered by a man named Robert Greenleaf in 1970, they call it servant leadership, that the best leaders are a blend of professional will and personal humility. So the best leader is not the one that came to be served, but to serve. And I don't even know if they realize, hey, Jesus said that about 2,000 years ago. So now they're implementing that. And the ones that activate that principle into their corporate businesses or whatever, those are the ones that are achieving the most for the kingdom of God. Not just for the kingdom of God, but even in their earthly successes. There's two types of leaders. Predominantly, there's all kinds, but there's two types predominantly. You have transformational leaders, which is like a visionary, a dreamer. You know, the Old Testament may refer to this person as a priest. Okay, and then the second one is a transactional. So you have transformational, visionary, dreamer, priestly, or the second one is transactional. Instead of a visionary, this person is more actionary. Okay, like a shareholder. Listen. The CEO of a company is nothing without the shareholders. The company itself is nothing without the shareholders. The CEO is nothing without management. Management is nothing without employees. So whether it's the janitor with a mop or the CEO with a pen, everybody has a place and everybody makes a difference. And no one person's task is more or less important in the scheme of accomplishment. Only in man's eyes are tasks more or less important. But in the heart of God, the most important thing is not the task. It's the completion of the task that you're given. 
So whether you're a transformational leader and you're a priestly leader and you're the one that speaks vision to the people or you're a king, you're the one that gets up at 7 o'clock every morning and goes to work all week long and then you come in and you provide to the vision. See, kings are provisionary and priests are visionaries. But without the provision of the king, the vision of the priest never comes to life. So one is not more important than the other They are all essential in accomplishing the vision and the will of God. So we don't get up here and beg for money. We get up here and give you opportunities to sow into what God's going to do. Because God has given a vision to this house. Now sometimes we have to all give as priests. And sometimes we have to all overcome some things and be providers as kings. Whatever it is that God has given you to do, I can tell you. That it's not more or less important than what God has given me or my wife or anybody else on our staff or in this church. He's given you something to do. Can I just tell you today, you are an original creation. Like God didn't accidentally create you. He didn't like spend a whole lot of time on somebody on June 7th and then create you on June 8th. And then on June 9th. Even though he was tired from the seventh, and he was like, well, I didn't really pay that one much attention. I'll create this one a little, little bit more. And then I was born on June 9th. Now, my poor little brother, maybe this is true. He's born on June 11th. That brother left out some stuff. I'm just going to be honest. But, that's ugly. I apologize. Y'all don't tell him I said that. God didn't make an accident when he made you. He made you on purpose. When you put your finger into ink and you put that on a piece of paper, it is an original and an only There is nobody else, listen, there's nobody else that leaves the imprint that you leave. So don't compare the imprint that God has given you to make on the lives of people that He's given you influence with or the place that He's given you and and, and the provision that He's given you the opportunity to have. Whatever it is, it's no more or less important than anybody else. It's yours. It's your imprint. And only you can make the imprint that you were created to make. So stop letting the enemy discourage you from the imprint that God created you to have. When we all do that together, we accomplish His vision. When the kings and the priests and the people all come in and everybody focuses on the task. When we work on our weaknesses... And we find fulfillment in our strengths. We leave the imprint that God created us to leave. Mine is no more or less important than yours. So whether you're standing in the parking lot, sweating, wondering why in the world we gave you a shirt that would show this much sweat. (laughs) Or you're in here in the air conditioning, shaking hands with people. It doesn't matter what you've been given to do. It matters that you do it with all of your heart as unto the Lord. So whether you're a worshiper on the platform or you're a worshiper in the chair, whatever God has given you to do, that's your imprint. And stop letting the enemy rob you from your imprint. What you do and what you are doing matters. And I can't move on. I'm supposed to share this story. I shared it yesterday 
in, uh, in our little our worship conference that we had with Reveal, Pastor John and, and a crew of bands came in and, and this place, I didn't realize how weak our speakers were until I heard four 18-inch subwoofers on our stage with multiple stacked speakers in mediums and highs blasting in this room yesterday. I mean, like, you could feel the music and it felt like the spirit. I'm not sure. I think I was confusing the two, but I was like, my heart's fluttering over something and I'm going with it. <laughs> it was good. It was powerful. It was, it was a great time. If you don't like that, you'll be okay. And so anyways, we, we had this opportunity to share and I shared this season of life. We had three kids in four years. So at one point, we had three babies in diapers. And I don't know if you've ever changed three diapers at once, but that's... Okay, so Megan was holding Gabriel and rocking him late at night one night. And she was just, I didn't even know this until years later. I was asleep, sorry. Uh, so she was rocking him, taking care of him. And she was just in tears, overwhelmed with all the responsibility of, of being a mother at home. And, and, and honestly, not having a whole lot of adult time with these three children that were not in school yet. And and she's got this little baby boy, and she's looking at this baby, and she's going, God, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I haven't spent any time with you. I, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I feel like I haven't been, like, doing what you want me to do and, and spending time with you. And, and, and just the grace of God in that moment, and I'm probably messing it up. She would probably tell it better. But the grace of God in that moment was, was, was the voice of the Lord that said, the same way that you look at him is the way that I'm looking at you. You're not giving yourself credit for just being faithful to what I've given you to do. You're rocking your child and caring for your children. Do you not think that I smile upon that? Do you not think that I'm just proud of the fact that you're taking care of what I've given you to do? Now, I know that there's still that time when you need to go and, and you need to set an appointment with Jesus and you need to have those private moments. But there are times when you need to stop letting the enemy distract you and discourage you from the imprint that you are making just because you're not getting to make an imprint of, in some other area. God is proud of you for doing whatever it is that you do right where you are because He loves you just as much as you would love a newborn child. Mistakes are common. But the most deadly mistakes are avoidable. Mistakes are common. But the most deadly mistakes are avoidable. And for this week and next week. We're going to look at the life of David. That, that Pastor Weston kind of introed us into. Two weeks ago. I wanted to do it last week. But I really felt like the Lord wanted me to preach on that. The greatest desire of the enemy. The plan of the enemy. To try to distract, discourage and, and keep you in his grip, which is if you let pride remain in your life, you can go back and watch that from last week. For the next two weeks, I'm going to discuss with you the seven stages of David's life. We're only doing three of them today. We're going to hone in on this last one. Here's the first stage if you're taking notes. Number one, the average stage. The average stage. This is when we're humble before him. This is when we realize who he is. And who we're not. And by the way, um, in the New Testament, you see two men come to Jesus. One of them, the Bible refers to as the rich young ruler. We don't even know his name. The rich young ruler asked Jesus, how can I be one of your disciples? What will it take for me to be one of your disciples? And eventually, essentially, Jesus says, go sell all your stuff 
and come back and follow me. And the Bible says he walked away in sorrow because he had much. You take the same guy, but you know his name. His name is Zacchaeus. Another heart, another spirit. It's not the exact same person, but a similar situation. You have this rich man with a lot to lose. And Zacchaeus is in a tree, and Jesus comes by, and he was seeking to save that which was lost, so he wasn't even distracted by the parade that the people were having for him. i got to be honest. I don't know if I would have seen the little dude sitting in the tree when I was in the middle of a parade that was about me, but Jesus did because he wasn't looking to be celebrated. He was looking to save. So he had his eyes fixed on the prize, and the prize wasn't himself. The prize was the one that was yet to be won. So Jesus saw Zacchaeus. And, and, and Zacchaeus repents. Zacchaeus, instead of being like the rich young ruler whose name we don't know and had a whole lot of stuff and it was the stuff that kept him from following Jesus, Zacchaeus, when he met Jesus that day, uh, it, Jesus didn't even have to ask him. Zacchaeus went and restored back to every person that he had ever stolen from, ever taken anything from, four times anything that he had taken. The difference between Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler was repentance. A changing of mind. The ultimate difference in that person was the rich young ruler knew who he was and he knew what he had. But Zacchaeus knew who he was not and he knew what he needed. And we know Zacchaeus' name. Do you know that if the rich young ruler, just consider this possibly, if the rich young ruler would have gone and, and done just that simple task of, of selling what he currently had and following Jesus? Which at some point, Jesus will ask all of us, maybe not to sell everything that we own, but to leave what we know to find what he knows. If the rich young ruler would have left everything that he had, we may have had a 13th disciple that we still celebrate today. But because he wasn't willing to, he wasn't able to, he decided not to, we don't even know the guy's name. It's the average stage. It's when David was in the middle of the field and he was alone. But in the middle of his... Uh, being alone and, and being average, he recognized the glory and the availability of the presence of God, calling him out of that place. The average stage is where God looks at the heart of the man over the outer appearance. The average stage is where you first appear. It's where you're plucked out of what you were in and you recognize the presence of God and the potential that you could be. It's when the Holy Spirit says, I'm really ready to make you more than you currently are. And you decide and you desire to become that because you realize that who you are is not necessarily who he has for you to be. God's call is not based on comparison or success. When we forget we are average, we think we're special. When we forget we're average, we think we're special. And we become arrogant. And when we become arrogant, we become unusable. The same thing that Lucifer became in his pride and his arrogance. God said, I can't use that anymore. God would look at us and say, I don't need your ability. I need your availability. I know you're average. I made you that way. I know you're fallen. I'm your creator. It's my desire to lift you up from where you are and make you more than you currently are. Number two. The anointing. I told you that this was more preachy. This wasn't like a shout you down and holler back. The anointing stage. This is a really super spiritual church word that we've heard a lot over the years. And, 
And I think that sometimes we've made too much of it. And honestly, on the other end of the spectrum, there have been times when we haven't appreciated it enough. There have been times when we made it the only thing worth having in a service, and that's all we went for, and we just left everybody else and forgot about the people that didn't understand where we were going. But then at the same time, there is that Ananias and Sapphira that would be willing to try to lie to the presence of God, and in the anointing would literally lose their life. So there's times where we take it too much for granted, and then there's times when we make too much out of it, and we forget why we have that anointing. But what is the anointing? Apart from the the spiritual accolades that it's been given over the years. It's really just God doing in us what we could never do for ourselves. The anointing of God is, is when we meet the presence of God, and it's God doing in us what we could never do for ourselves. Now, I want to just I want to make sure that you notice this. In the story of David, he was anointed as the eighth son, and he was anointed as the king of Israel. And he did not go back to the, he did not go from the anointing to the palace. He did not go from that place of anointing into the palace and become king on the throne. You know where David went after he was anointed? Back to the pasture. See, when we meet with God, we think that he wants to take us out of all the stuff that we were in, but really he wants us to put us back in it and be different than we were the last time. God wants us to go back to our ordinary lives and be extraordinary in His anointing. God wants to take us back to the place that we were just in and do something different with us so that we will make a difference where we are. After His anointing, He didn't go to the palace. He went to the pasture. And the only difference was that God had marked David as His property. See, yesterday, he was just a shepherd boy attending the flock. But today, because of the presence of God and the anointing of God, he was a shepherd of sheep that was learning how to mend his trade to be the leader that God decided and desired for him to become. It was the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That anointing, we usually confuse by thinking that that marks our ownership of God. Like, I own God, and now, now I have rights to God. And it's not necessarily false, it's just the wrong perspective. What the anointing of God actually marks is God's ownership of us. That God is now in us and over us. And now, because we have confessed Him as Lord, we have something worth following. We can be a leader in Him because we have His anointing. Here's the third stage, and this is the one we're going to settle in for the day. The armor-bearing stage. An armor-bearer, the armor-bearing stage. An armor-bearer is someone who is responsible for protecting you in battle. Someone who is willing to carry your shield and guard your blind spot. It was several months ago now that we were at district council and I believe his name is Don Leachy. I remember Leachy for sure. His Dr. Leachy, uh, he is the head of Emerge Ministries, which is the leading counseling service of the Assemblies of God in the United States. So this guy is, 
is at the top of all the counselors that oversee a ton of pastors and minister to more pastors than they should probably have to in ministry and not just pastors, but anybody else in leadership or connected or that finds out about them, they'll pull them in. And this guy that is leading this counseling agency looked at us about seven months ago as we were at our district council. He was preaching. He said, listen, I'm going to share with you a story about a, uh, a young pastor a, a, a great couple that were doing some incredible things for God, but, but he began to, to kind of go his way without a covering and, and without accountability. She kind of began to do her own thing without a covering and without accountability. And ultimately, they both succumbed to the, to the temptation of the praise of other people. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with my wife being over here ministering to a group and me being over here and ministering to a group. But if you're apart from your accountability, you better hope that somebody else is watching you. Because what you do in the secret will eventually expose you in public. And who you are in the field will eventually be who you are in front of the entire kingdom. Now, that's a good thing and a bad thing. If you're preparing the right thing in the secret place, then God will expose you the right way in the place in front of all the people. But who you are privately is going to be who you become publicly at one point or another. And eventually this couple was exposed. They had a tragic moral failure. The church was hurt. Everything that was built up was broken back down, and everybody had to recover. And Dr. Don Leachy looked at us in this meeting, and he pointed across the room, and he said, if you do not have an armor bearer today, you better find one before you get home or you will have a moral failure so I got on the phone and I started calling all kinds of people and to this day you'll watch me I don't go anywhere in this church alone if I'm alone it's just because I got off but faster than somebody wanted but they know all of our staff knows I want you to watch me like a hawk don't you ever let me be alone with somebody I'm not supposed to be alone with If you ever see anything inside of me that you don't like, that you don't love, or that could lead me and or you astray, I want you to know that you have the right to speak into my life because I don't want to become somebody's statistic. I want to have accountability. I want to have boundaries. And I don't just have people carrying my Bible and fetching my water. I have people that are walking in this life with me and know that they have the right to speak into me at any time or place. And if I get offended by what they have to say, that's my problem. And if I'm carrying my feelings on my shoulders, then they probably need to knock them off because I'd rather have my feelings knocked off than my entire ministry forsaken. I'd rather have my feelings hurt than my children hurt. Come on, somebody. You understand what I'm saying? you got to have accountability, and you have to have boundaries, and you have to let people speak into your life. But the reason that most of us don't let people speak into our lives is because what they're saying is true, and we don't really want to hear it. Notice I said we. Because I'm not in this, like, I'm not on this platform. I just a little bit, little bit higher because it'd be harder for me, y'all to some of y'all to see me if I was down here all the time. But this platform doesn't give me a specific place in the kingdom of God. I'm in this with you. And I've got to let people speak into my life. And I can't walk around with a spirit of offense because that's a demonic spirit that Lucifer never dealt with and he's going to pay for for all eternity. It's a prideful spirit. When something hurts me, it's not really hurting me. It's not really hurting my feelings. It's hurting my pride. And that's not their problem. That's my problem. I believe that the devil has actually used people to try to distract me and discourage me over the years. But instead of being offended by it, even though they didn't have the right because they don't have the relationship, and I could have got on my hot horse and thought, you don't even know me. You don't be talking to me that way. You don't know who I am. You don't know where I've been. But instead, I look for the little bit of truth that's behind everything that somebody says. And I know that even Lucy 
Lucifer was created by God, so God can use that punk too. And there may be something inside of that statement that could make me better. So instead of being offended by it, I'm going to learn from it and be what they thought I would not be. I'm going to learn and live it out because I'm just average. And God put an anointing on me, but at the end of the day, I'm just average. And I need an armor bearer. We cannot lead until we learn how to follow. And if we're not following Jesus, then we will lead people astray. My feelings are hurt. It's my fault. David knew how to to treat his armor bearer because he had been one. David knew how to treat his armor bearer because he had been one. And, And you may be thinking, well, I don't have anybody like that in my life. Well, then be that for somebody else. And then when you learn how to celebrate somebody else, God will teach you. God will teach somebody else to celebrate you. When you learn to be the provision for somebody else's need, then God will begin to provide for your need. Sometimes it's the obedience that God just can't give us everything we want to spoil us because we would have never become what we were if we wouldn't have had to go through where he's been. So you don't look at other people at what they have because you don't know what it took to go on that place, to become that place. You don't know what their shoes were full of before they got that new pair of shoes. So don't want what they have. The, the pasture may be greener on the other side of the fence, but it might have been filled with chicken poop yesterday that that pastor had to walk through. So you might not want what he had because your boots aren't full of the same stuff that he had in his. Come on, somebody. You look at where you are and you tend to your business and worry about yourself. Grow from where you are and become who God created you to be. And you don't have to worry about See, I done started preaching. I thought I was teaching today. An armor bearer covers the weak spots. An armor bearer covers the weak spots. Is someone who will encourage you when you are down, watch this, and will defend you when you are not around to defend yourself. The armor bearer will defend you when you're not around to defend yourself. What you do to receive promotion will be what it takes to keep promotion. What you do to receive promotion will be what it takes for you to keep that promotion. So in other words, if you're in a specific season of life, you're in a specific place of life, and you're looking at the leadership that God has put over you, and you're thinking, that person doesn't deserve that, they shouldn't be right there, well, friend, that's not up to you. That was up to God. And God didn't make a mistake whenever he put that person in leadership over you. He probably put that person in leadership over you because that's exactly what you needed to get to the next phase. And until you learn the lesson that you're supposed to learn where you are, then he won't be able to move you to the next place. And if you try to manipulate or move that person out of place, then whatever it took for you to get into that place, it will take for you to keep that place. And you'll have to spend the rest of your life manipulating and moving people out of your way and giving an eternal account for that instead of just letting God do what he wants to do in you and ultimately use you the way he wants to through you for whatever he had for you. See, the reason that I'm not scared of anybody taking my place in this pulpit is because I didn't earn this. I didn't give me this. God put me in this position. God anointed me. God gave me a vision. God showed me a city. God had me share it with a specific person at a specific time. God orchestrated the whole thing. And what God has given me, no man, woman, or child can take away from me. And I don't have to worry about it because I didn't earn it, manipulate, or move anybody to get into it. God positioned me when he got ready to. And so I can walk in it because I know that it was him that brought me here. And it will be him that brings me through. Now, I don't know who that's for, and I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm just saying, when God positions you, you don't have to be afraid of it. When God promotes you, you don't have to worry about it. 
When you promote yourself, what it took to get you there will take you, keep you there. Now listen, next week we're going to talk about the most dangerous stage, but I want to settle here for just a few more minutes. I want to show you some of the tests that David went through. I'm going to skip a little bit in my notes. Jump with me here. I want you to notice that throughout his entire life, David could look back and see how God always did what was best for him. I don't know if you noticed that. No, that's... Well, what about what happened to me when I was... What about what that person did? I can't explain that. And I don't believe that everything happens for a reason. Not next week, but the week after that, we're going to go into a series called God Never Said That. And there's a lot of things that people say that God never said. Like everything happens for a reason. That's a lie from the pit of hell. There's no reason that a child should be raped. God's not in that. God's not for that. There's no reason that person was murdered or lost their life before they were supposed to. God's not for that. God's not in that. Everything doesn't happen for a reason, but God can bring reason to everything that happens. God will bring reason and bring a good out of what the enemy meant for evil. And what was meant to harm you, God can use you to heal because He is still a miracle working God that makes a way where there seemed to be no way. I don't know who I'm talking to today, but I'm telling you where you came from is not where you're going because where you're going is defined on who you are in Him. I can't explain your past. All I know that God has positioned you right here today. And He has a hope and a plan for your future. He has a desire for you, but you got to pass some tests along the way. See, David was willing to go through the process of proving. He was willing to go through the obscurity test. The obscurity test when he was intentionally left off the invitation. Let me ask you a question. Are you offended when you're left out and overlooked? When they invite everybody but you. When they acknowledge everybody but you. When other people are celebrated, does it offend you because you're not being celebrated? I was on somebody's foot. I felt it underneath mine. David went through the demotion test. Listen, if I'm stepping on your feet, then stop standing where I'm preaching. I had to do the same. And if the Holy Spirit gave it to me to eat, I figured it was going to be good enough for you. David had to go through the demotion test. After he had been anointed. After he had been appointed. After the prophet had prophesied over him, he went back to the field. And it was in the field that ultimately he would be called to the palace, but he wouldn't be called to the palace as a king. He would be called to the palace to serve the king. Not even in a way that would really promote him. They stuck him in a corner and said, hey, pretty boy, play your harp. The king doesn't feel good. Play him a song. David's like, I'm anointed by... No, David sat down, shut up, and played his harp. He did what he was called to do where he was. And God used his obedience to set him up for an appointment for the next phase. See, our response to demotion will determine our next position. Because we only begin a new season as well as we ended the previous. We only begin a new season as well as we ended the previous. I don't share this story a lot so I don't want it to sound like I'm patting myself on the back. But man, I played the best baseball of my life in spring training in 2008. I never played better baseball than the three weeks of my life that I played in spring training in high A for the Houston Astros. I hit better. I was on base more. I made catches that the coaches pulled me over and asked me, who taught you how to do that? I said, I just do it. I don't know. I just want to catch the ball. This is how I play. 
And at the end of that process, they left me off of the rosters and left me in extended spring training. I was mad, angry, furious. I had outperformed all of them. I had worked harder. I didn't come to spring training to prepare for the season. I prepared for spring training so that I'd be ready for the season. I did everything I was supposed to do, and I still got left out, and I almost quit. And I called my uncle because there's always wisdom in a multitude of counsel. So before you make a really important decision, you better call somebody else and ask them and let them speak into you from a perspective of an outside looking in to what's actually best for you. He says, son, don't quit. Don't quit. You know what was important about that? Not that a month and a half later, I'd still be playing on a dirt fence with a chain le- or dirt field with a chain leak fence. But that I would pray a prayer a month and a half later that would say, God, I don't know why you sent me here, but I'm thankful for the opportunity. If Major League Baseball is not what you have for me, then send me home and let me get ready for whatever it is that you have for me to provide for my family with. Thank you for this dream, but I'm ready to achieve my destiny now. I was there for one more day and he sent me home. I was released. I went back home. And here we are, almost 11 years later, doing what God called us to do because we didn't quit, because we didn't give up. Even when other people didn't recognize our gifting and our talent, which God gave us anyway, we stayed true. We stayed disciplined. And by the way, that is the thing that disciples are made of because you only begin a new season as well as you ended the last. So before you ask God to do anything else around you, start begging him to create in me a pure heart and a right spirit before ye. Cast me not away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of the day that I first met you. Help me to accomplish it. Let me jump to our last test for the sake of time. We call this the delay test. David had to pass the delay test. It was that time between the pasture and the palace. It was the time between his anointing and his appointing. He had to wait. He had to go through the preparation, the refining, even the fire. You know what what God did to David after he was appointed? After he was anointed, after he was an armor bearer, and after he served faithfully, he said, good for you. Go sit in a cave of a doolum by yourself. And I'm not going to send you the mighty warriors. I'm going to send you the fallen, the forsaken, the hurting, and the ones that nobody else wants. That was David's army in a cave, not as a king. David was delayed. He was delayed in his destiny. But it was during that time of delay that God did what only God can do. He stirred inside of David and a, a, a something that would, he would almost never forget because he knew what David was headed towards. He knew what David could be, the good and the bad. And he tried to hold him. There's a book that a, a, an individual wrote. It's about the silent years of Jesus. And there's not a lot in the Bible, in the um, Council of Nicaea version of the Bible, the, the approved, the canonical 
book of the Bible, the ones that were put there on purpose and the ones that were not put there on purpose. There's not about the life, a lot about the life of Jesus between the age of 12 and 30. But in this book, this lady writes about the importance of the preparation. The importance of the preparation being that Jesus was willing to prepare 30 years for three and a half years of ministry. And we want to prepare three or four and expect that to hold us up for the next 30 or 40. And wonder why in our late 30s or early 40s we go through a midlife crisis. It's because we quit preparing. It's because we quit letting God stir something fresh and something new. It's because we quit being willing to wait and just went after whatever we wanted. When God was like, hey, I wasn't done. I wasn't finished. That's why at the wedding of Cana, I believe this is a personal theological interpretation. You don't have to agree with this. But I believe at the wedding of Cana, when Jesus looked at Mary, Mary is like, hey, we don't have enough water. We need to change the water into wine. We need you to change this, this unfiltered water into something that they can drink and that they can partake of and that would be filling to them. It needs to be pure. It needs to be holy. It needs to be clean. And that's what Jesus did. That's just, my again, my perspective. And Jesus looked at her and said, Mama, it's not my time. It's not my time. Because remember, Jesus was 100% flesh and 100% God all at the same time. And so in his flesh, I believe Jesus was like, hey, look, I'm not done preparing. I'm still stirring here. I'm still simmering. But it was his earthly mother that made a request to the Son of God. And the Son of God came out of his preparation and into the place that was prepared for him. Even Jesus still wanted to take more time to prepare than just to practice what he was preparing for. Jesus himself, the Son of God, was willing to go dormant in Scripture to make sure that he became in his flesh who his Father sent him to be. And in the midst of saying, it has not yet become my time because he was fully divine, we see an essence that we can ask God to do something and he will move on our behalf even though it wasn't quite time for it to be done. That if we will seek him, we will find him and we seek him with all of our heart. And because Hezekiah prayed, God sent 80,000 angels to defeat the enemy on behalf of the Israelites. Because Amos prayed, the Bible says God changed his mind. You can seek the Father if you're willing to go through the test. So let me remind you as we close today that God has called you. God is calling you. Maybe He's anointed you. Maybe you've had that encounter. But listen, we're still average. And it's Him that is amazing. Maybe you never realized how important you were before God. Or maybe, like me, you grew up thinking that you were more than everybody else just because of who you came from or the talent or the ability that you had. So whether God's trying to call you into something that you don't see yourself as or out of something that you're giving too much credit to, I'm telling you, He's calling you. He's calling you. He's appointed you. He's anointed you. He's giving you an imprint that only you can make. So let me ask you a final question. When God places your life and your success on the shelf and He says, wait, will you keep serving Him? Will you keep looking to Him? Not did you confess Him as Lord, but will you confess Him as Lord? 
When a prophet spoke a word over you or when God placed something inside of you and then he said, hey, I believe in you. Now wait. Will you go through the process, the discipline of becoming that disciple that he desires for you to be? Wherever you are right now, it's the final thing I'll say, and then we're going to pray. Wherever you are right now, right now, that's where God positioned you to be. So the question is, what will you do with it? Let's pray. Father, right now, I just pray for every person in the room. I thank you for your word that it will not return unto you void. I want to encourage you right where you sit. I want you to ask the Lord, God, what stage am I in? See, in God's eyes, we're all children, so we're all in the same place. But in the eyes of this life, we're all in different stages. So I want you to ask the Lord, what stage am I in? What stage am I in? And let him speak back to you. Identify that place. And now ask him, Lord, whatever stage I'm in, Help me to be there. I don't want you to change one more thing till you change me. Don't change my position. God, change my perspective. Help me see as you see. Now with every head bowed and every eye closed, there are those of you in the room today that you can't answer the position of what stage you're in because you're not in Him. You're still doing your own thing. You're still living your own desires. You're still carrying the weight of your own sin, maybe even your own shame. And God wants to deliver you from that today. He wants to set you free of what somebody else has done to you. He wants to set you free of what you're doing to yourself. His desire is that you would receive the sacrifice that He's made for you. To receive the life that He's purchased for you. So your stage is that you're average. But you need His anointing. You need to meet Him right where you are today. Now whether you have never dedicated your life to Jesus or whether you need to rededicate your life to Jesus. If you are not following Him, I can promise you that your soul will not be at rest and you will not be fulfilled until you enter into that position. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, we're going to pray a prayer in just a minute, give you the opportunity to confess, to repent, to ask for forgiveness, to commit your life to Him, to dedicate your life to Him. So if you need to pray that prayer, if you want to be included in that prayer right where you sit, would you just lift your hand and say, Chris, that's me. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. I'm not currently in that process. I need to dedicate my life to Jesus. I don't want to live another day trying to do it my way. I want to do it his way. Anybody else? Thank you. I'll give you just a second. We're going to pray in 10 seconds. I see you. Thank you. Seven. 
thank you, thank you. Don't leave me out. God, I want you to see my hand. It's me he's talking to. I want to commit my life to you. I want to dedicate my life to you. Three seconds. Two. One. Anybody else? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Thank you for your patience. But now I want you to pray with everything that you have. The Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray together. Jesus, forgive me for where I fall short. Save me from myself, from my past, even from my own perspective. Forgive me and use me for your kingdom. Take my life. Make it yours. Help me to follow you with all of my heart from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, stand with me all over the room, right where you are. Hey, listen, church, if you believe in that prayer, for those who dedicated and rededicated, could we just give Jesus the praise that he deserves? That he's